His hands were tied and a blindfold was taken out that would be wrapped around his eyes. The man stood there in front of the firing squad ready to be executed. That's when the captain of the guard, a huge man, a real tall and heavy man, a man with an extremely wide girth, spoke up and asked, Do you have a final request? The convict thought for a few seconds, looked at this wide-bodied captain, and then he answered, Yes, I do. Would you please stand in front of me? You know, I didn't really think you were going to laugh at that joke, and, and you didn't. And so I just brought my own. It was just a little late arriving. A little late getting here. <laughs> John 13 through 17 are Jesus' last words. His final instructions to his disciples. Jesus is facing the Jewish firing squad. And he knows he's going to face it alone. In the end, none of his disciples are strong enough to stand with him and for him. Jesus is the one with his back against the wall. But instead of his disciples comforting him, he is the one who has to comfort his disciples. And in these chapters, he promises them hope. He promises them help and he promises them heaven. Now, over the last three and a half years, Jesus has been investing a lot in the lives of these disciples. And now they have come to the moment of truth. Imagine his disappointment. When their loyalty fades under fire, under the fire they're going to experience, he's going to end up with deserters for disciples and a Benedict Judas to boot. And that's why John chapter 13 verse 1 is for me one of the most important verses in the Bible. It expresses the heart of Jesus like no other. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, catch this, he loved them to the end. Hey, you're never more like Jesus than when you've been betrayed You've been forsaken, you've been mistreated, and yet you love those people to the end. Even though they failed him, even though they denied him, even though they betrayed him, it did not thwart Jesus' love for them. He loved them to the end. Guys, that means for you and me, never forget it. When you stop loving Jesus, it doesn't mean he stops loving you. He also will love you to the end. Verse 3 should be accompanied with a drum roll. It's quite an introduction. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Man, he has all things in his hands here. The power that hung the heavens, that created the universe, is now coursing through his veins. Miracle muscles are bulging. Divine know-how are at Jesus' disposal. Think of it this way. The infinite resources of God have become his toolbox. Jesus' goal is to fix a broken world. What tool will he choose? What will he do next? 
what Jesus does with this mind-boggling supernatural power is this. He pulls out a towel and a bowl and he proceeds to wash feet. In the Middle East, open-toed shoes or sandals were in fashion. And it was a common courtesy for the servant of the house to wash the feet of the guests when they arrived. Of course, the disciples didn't think of themselves as servants. They were all concerned with who was the greatest. And so it was left up to Jesus that night to do the dirty work. The master stoops to serve. He humbles himself in order to build up and refresh and cleanse and wash the feet of his disciples. What do you do with supernatural power? What do you do with God's strength? Hey, you humble yourself and you wash feet. When Jesus approaches Peter, a prideful Peter balks. In verse 8, he responds, you shall never wash my feet. You see, foot washing (laughs) assaults the pride of the person with the rag, and then it mocks the pride of the person with the feet. Foot washing in anyone's culture is humbling and humiliating business, and Peter wants nothing to do with it. That is until Jesus answers him in verse 8. I do not wash you. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And in that case, Peter answers, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, you sort of admire his brokenness here, his desire for Jesus, but he still doesn't get it. Jesus answers him in verse 10. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. You know, you don't need to take a bath, Peter. All you need are your feet washed. Whenever a man was invited to a special event, he would first take a bath, but then en route to the function, his feet would get dirty. And when he arrived, he didn't need another bath, he just needed his feet cleaned. Come to Jesus and you get a cleansing bath. When you embrace Christ, your spirit, the inner man, is washed spick and span. The problem, though, is that we still have to interface with this dirty world. And in that process, we pick up dust. We don't need to get saved all over again. Rather, from time to time, we just need a refreshing and a cleansing of our attitude. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells us that foot washing is an example, not a ritual. You can wash a million feet and miss the point. Jesus is after here an attitude in us not an action. Jesus is demonstrating how we should treat people. Washing feet means that we should approach them humbly, that we should bathe them with kind words and with healing deeds. We should pour out on them encouragement and cleansing and healing. We should, by all means, do what we can to make them feel welcome. Hey, if washing feet is not your primary business, you're not following the Master. And notice in verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And you remember the word blessed, it means happy. Here's a shocking thought. If you want to be happy, if you came tonight asking, Oh, I would give anything to be happy, then be a foot washer. Oh, now, come on, Sandy. I want to be happy. How am I going to be happy walking around washing feet? Jesus says, Blessed are you if you do them? That's what Jesus said. And I ask you a question. Has he ever lied to you? 
Has he? Nope. What have you got to lose except the blues? Here's how you can be happy. It's time to forget about yourself. Take a bowl and a towel and wash a few feet. Look at the people around you who need to be encouraged, who need to be cleansed, who need to be bathed with kindness. You get about that work and your cares will drift away and you'll find yourself a happy person. In verses 18 through 30, Jesus' heart is heavy over Judas. You know, it is a real testimony that Jesus's love for Ju- of Jesus' love for Judas, that his disciples didn't immediately know that Judas was the betrayer. I mean, Jesus knew, and, and if I had known, I'm sure it would have been indicative in how I treated him. Judas, you, you clean the, the bathrooms today. Judas, you, you know. I'd have given him all the dirty jobs. Apparently, Jesus didn't do that. They didn't even know who it was who would betray him. In fact, Judas was probably sitting at Jesus' right hand, the place of honor. Verse 23 mentions the disciple, quote, whom Jesus loved. That was John's nickname for himself. It says that he was leaning on Jesus. And since we live in a right-handed world and everyone propped up on their right elbow, John must have been sitting to Jesus' immediate left. That means who was sitting to his right? Well, it had to be Judas because Jesus Jesus then took the bread, dipped it in the juice and handed him the sop. He had to be close enough for Jesus to hand him that wet piece of bread, the signal, the sign that he was the betrayer. It's interesting to me that Judas that night must have been sitting at Jesus' right hand, the place of honor, which makes his betrayal all the more heartbreaking. In verse 34, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, loving one another was nothing new. It had been commanded in the law. But here was the catch, to love as Jesus loved. Oh, that had never been done. Jesus' love was supernatural love. It was love with no strings attached. To love like Jesus loves is to love with God's love. And that's what we've been commanded. In verse 35, Jesus says, We'll be identified as his followers Not by our our sound doctrine, not by our moral lies, not by the miracles we perform, not by our bumper stickers or our T-shirts, but by our love for one another. You know, sometimes it's easier to love a sinner than it is a saint. You know, we expect more out of those within the family of God than those from without. How do you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ? Hey, the world will know that God is my Father by how I treat my brother. Did you hear about the farmer who went to see his banker one day? The farmer opened the conversation by saying, well, today I've got some good news for you and some bad news. The banker responded, well, why don't you tell me the bad news first? He said, well, the drought has wiped out my crop and I won't be able to pay my mortgage this year. And the money I borrowed from the farm machinery, well, I can't pay that loan either. And that advance I took out for the fertilizer, hey, I don't have that money either. Well, the upset banker stopped him and he said, wait a minute. He said, okay, go ahead and tell me the good news. A smile rode across the farmer's face and he said, well, the wife and I talked it over last night and we've decided to continue doing business with your bank. (laughs) 
Well, here we have some good news and some bad news in this chapter. Here's the bad news. The hour of Jesus' death has come. He's going away. Judas will betray him. Peter will deny him. That's the bad news. But now in chapter 14, Jesus gives his disciples and us some good news. And he opens with a cheerful note. Verse verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus won't split to never return. He'll be back. Isn't that exciting? We have a home in heaven with Jesus. You see, Jesus left his disciples to go and develop a set of heavenly condos. If you know him, you know that you've got one of those in your name. It's rent-free for all eternity, reserved for you. It's interesting, the English word that's rendered mansions is actually from the Greek word that means mone, which means simply rooms. The root word means to stay. And so a mone could be translated as a staying place. As I was growing up, I used to think of this promise, you know, that he's provided for us a mansion in heaven. I used to think of some big, great, you know, plantation house or some colonial estate or some medieval castle. It really, what I used to picture was Jed Clampett's house. You know, that's just what I thought of a, my mansion in heaven. It's going to be that 40-room house with, you know, the cement pond and the fancy felt-covered uh, dining room table and, you know, that, that home in Beverly Hills. But that's not what Jesus promises us. That's not what he means by mansion. In essence here, he's promising us a room. He's promising us a place to stay under his father's roof in his father's house. Robert Frost defined the word home as the place where they have to take you in. That's home. It's the place where you are known best and most loved, where you can be yourself, where you can feel accepted, where you can let your hair down and relax and unwind. That's home. You see, if heaven were some huge cavernous castle or some lonely mansion, I would be disappointed. But Jesus' idea of heaven is not some castle fortress or some lonely old mansion. Jesus' idea of heaven is a place of intimacy, of fellowship, a place of belonging in the Father's house. Now that gets exciting to me. A staying place in the home of God. What a wonderful promise indeed. And if you know Jesus, you have a staying place under God's roof for all eternity. Thomas asked Jesus in verses 5 and 6, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? In other words, he's looking here for an actual road map, an atlas to heaven. But Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here is a foundational Christian premise. Christianity is not a set of precepts or a philosophy. It is a person. Jesus is the way to God. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I am a way or a truth or a life. No, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is saying that the way to God is very narrow and specific. 
Of course, this kind of narrow-mindedness in an age of pluralism and relativism is a bit offensive, but think it through. There are some issues in life that are not open to new interpretation or negotiation or debate. There are rights and there are wrongs. This year, when I do my income tax, suppose I decide to just estimate my income. Why bother looking it up? I'll just take a guess. Let's just round off my dependents. I'll just round up to ten. How about that? And while I look at the tax tables in the back, you know, I'll just do what seems fair to me. How about that? You know, if you're sincere, that's all that matters. <laughs> hey, if I take that approach to my income tax, I'll end up in jail. And if you take that approach to God, you'll end up in hell. Yes, you will. See, the way to God is very, very narrow. God made it that way. He made it specific. He made it exact. Jesus said, I am the way. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. You know, all kinds of people claim to know the way to heaven, but only Jesus came from heaven. Therefore, heaven is his hometown. Since he hails from heaven, surely Jesus is the one who knows how to get back there. I'm putting my trust in him. In verse 8, Philip wants to see the Father. You know, this is the cry of every human heart. The desire to see God. And Jesus answers him, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Imagine Philip had spent the last three and a half years with God and didn't even know it. All this talk of Jesus' departure had upset his disciples for many reasons, not the least of which was the feeling that they had just gotten started. I mean, real momentum had just been generated. Lazarus had been resurrected. Jesus' triumphant entry into the city. Man, they thought the ball was really rolling now. The disciples were wondering, how are they going to build the kingdom of God without a king? Lord, we're just getting started, and now you're talking of going somewhere? Retiring? Moving away? What's the deal? You see, it was essential, though, for Jesus to leave so that the Holy Spirit would come. In verse 12, Jesus even says that the disciples will do greater miracles than he had done. And in the book of Acts, you see, that's exactly what happens. Certainly in terms of supernatural spectacle, how can you beat the resurrection of Lazarus? But in terms of scope and in terms of quantity, 12 disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit scattered around the world are able to do more and accomplish more than one man fixed in Israel empowered by that same spirit. In that sense, the disciples were able to do more than Jesus had done. Both then and now, Jesus unleashes his power through prayer. He says in verse 13, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But notice the key to prayer. It's to be, our prayer should be in Jesus' name. In essence, according to his nature. Understand, Jesus had tutored these disciples, these 12 men, for three and a half years. They had learned to depend on Jesus for everything, every day. He had been their constant help. Now Jesus is leaving. But they won't be left alone. Another helper is going to take the Messiah's place. The Holy Spirit will take up, Jesus says, where he has left off. The expression he uses here in verse 16, he calls the Holy Spirit another helper. That word another means another of the same kind. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit continues the work that Jesus has started in the heart and life of the believer. Holy Spirit now is just going to work that work from the inside out. In sports, there are players that specialize in coming off the bench to help the team. In basketball, it's called the sixth man. In baseball, it's the pinch hitter. In football, it's the nickelback. These guys are the substitutes who come in, the replacements who come in and fill the job and keep the team up to speed. You might say the Holy Spirit is the super sub. He's come, he takes Jesus' place. He takes up where Jesus leaves off among his disciples. In verse 16, the Holy Spirit is called the helper, or literally the paracletus. The word means to come alongside. And for me, whenever I think of this word, it conjures up the picture of the president's bodyguard, that special agent who assists the president and guides him and protects him and is willing to throw his body in front of the president and take that bullet if necessary. If you could see into the spiritual realm, and if we could look at you in the spiritual realm, we would probably see a man standing next to you in a dark suit, wearing sunglasses, with an earpiece in his ear, standing right next to each of us. He is the special agent, Holy Spirit. Not 007, but 777. Special agent 777. And he's been assigned to you. He is your bodyguard. He is your paracletus. He is your helper who has come alongside of you to protect you and provide for you and be Jesus in your life. Just as Jesus discipled His men, the Holy Spirit wants to work and lead and guide your life. Guys, the disciples will no doubt miss Jesus. But the team is going to continue to roll with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus assures them in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And He does in the person of the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, Jesus defines the Holy Spirit's duties. Before we're saved, He is with us. He's convicting us of sin. He's drawing us to the Savior. When we embrace Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. The Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. He is with me, then He comes to live in me. In verse 26, the Holy Spirit provides supernatural recall In other words, we're told that He will bring to our mind God's Word when we need to remember it. What a neat blessing. I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit's a great guy to have around in a number of ways. Jesus closes chapter 14 with a promise. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The world's peace is the absence of conflict. It's been said, peace is the short interval of time when everyone stops to reload. That's the world's peace. God's peace, though, is contentment in the midst of that conflict. It's the inner clarity. It's an inexplicable rest. It's harmony with God. Even as the circumstances around you come unraveled and you find yourself in the midst of the world's madness, there's still a peace in your heart. That's the peace of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't tell us here to ask for peace. He's already left it with us. It's within our grasp. All we have to do is stretch out in faith 
and take possession of his peace. In John 15, Jesus introduces the gospel grapes. Jesus tells us that he is divine. He is literally divine. He's divine. You get it? Divine. You guys are slow. (laughs) Jesus and his disciples have just left the upper room. And they're headed now to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they do, they're walking up the Mount of Olives. And interspersed between those olive groves are various vineyards. Jesus stops along the way and he points to these vines. And he draws an illustration and he compares his relationship with his followers to a vine and a branch. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father the vine dresser. And we learn quickly from this illustration that what Jesus is after in the branches is fruit. The fruits of the Spirit, labors of love, effective witness. These are all in the eyes of God juicy fruits. Our lives should yield these fruits. But to produce fruit that pleases God, a branch must be attached and living and drawing from the vine. The life-giving sap, the life force that produces the fruit doesn't come from the branch itself. It comes from the connection that the branch has with the vine. That's where we get our life, our connection, the power to produce fruit in our lives from our connection, from our graft into the vine. The person who abides in Christ, who trusts in that connection, is the person who becomes fruitful spiritually. Guys, the branch is not the source. The source is the vine. Jesus says, you can do nothing of yourself. The only job that the branch needs to do is to abide or to stay connected to that vine. Too many Christians struggle to produce fruit through their own efforts. You know, just watch a a plant. You never see a branch struggling. It just naturally bears fruit when it's properly connected. Its only job is to hang out, to take in, to stay connected. You know, in golf, you don't have to swing hard to hit the ball a long way. You see this on the television. You see these professionals. They take these nice, easy swings, and boom, that ball just sails. There's a golf adage, let the club head do the work. You know, that that club is made so that if you strike that ball and you position the club properly when it meets that ball, that ball is just going to naturally fly a long way and in the right direction. And likewise, the key to spiritual success, it's just as simple. Meet the Savior with the right attitude. And the connection will do all the work. The graft, fruit will grow. Good things will happen. You'll get the boldness. You'll get the joy. You'll get the peace if you just consistently meet the Savior with the proper attitude in the right place. If you abide in the vine, God will work in your life. The Spirit will energize you and you'll bear fruit. Study this passage and you'll notice a progression. First there's fruit. Then there's more fruit. Then there's much fruit. Bearing fruit pleases God, and His goal is to maximize the yield. And so Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. I'm sure you've seen a bush that's been pruned. It looks like you've killed it. 
The leaves, the thickness are gone. The branch gets cut back so that the sap will flow to the fruit, not the foliage. And this is what is often needed in our lives. God cuts back our foliage. He thins out our greenery to make room for more grapes. He puts the knife to our life in order to cut out the unnecessary habits, the unwholesome activities, the fluff in our life, the unhealthy relationships, the unprofitable ambitions. He causes us to to refocus on what really matters. You see, when God prunes you, it hurts. You're tempted to think that He's killing you. It's painful. And there are times when you think that God has taken the knife and He's sunk it in too far. Just too painful. But hey, when He starts to eliminate things that you thought you could never live without, (laughs) it's going to be painful. But when you submit, when you yield to that pruning knife, you'll bounce back with a wonderful, bigger bounty of fruit than you ever thought possible. It's really true. Less can be more. (laughs) And He prunes us to get that more. And know what happens if a branch doesn't bear fruit. Verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Verse 6 adds, It's thrown into the fire. People ask me from time to time, Do you believe in eternal security? And I always answer, sure. I believe you're eternally secure as long as you're abiding in the vine. But if you're a branch, and if you are bearing no fruit, then hey, there comes a point where God will cut you off. We're told you'll be thrown into the fire. You see, it's not enough to put your faith in Jesus at a point in time. You have to continue in that faith. You have to abide in the vine. Jesus is not teaching here, once saved, always saved. What he is teaching, though, is once shaved, always shaved. (laughs) Because he is going to prune you over and over and over again. The shaving continues time after time. Why? Because he wants to bear more and more and much fruit. In chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And in just a few hours, Jesus is going to prove that he has this kind of love for us. Jesus says in verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You see, servants work out of obligation or duty or for a paycheck or to avoid punishment. But a friend has a relationship. Are you a hired hand? Are you merely a servant of Jesus? Or are you a friend of Jesus? Your answer to that question will determine your motive. It will color every aspect of your Christian life. Jesus has called us to be more than servants. He's called us to be friends. The rest of chapter 15 is full of important truths. In verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. In verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Don't expect medals for living a godly life. From this world, expect nails. In verse 20, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. In other words, Jesus strips us of our excuses. Reject the beauty, the truth in Jesus Christ, and it's proof that you never wanted God in the first place. And in verse 23, who hates me hates my Father also. In chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus reintroduces the subject of the Holy Spirit. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. Notice that. What's His job? The Spirit will testify of Jesus. Once when Johnny Carson hosted The Tonight Show, the camera suddenly panned off stage. And it focused on Freddie D. Varkova. Freddie was the longtime director of the show. And the shot of him was unusual. It was unplanned. And when he realized what had happened, he became furious. And he shouted to the cameraman, No, 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 get the camera on Johnny. He's the star. That was his attitude. And understand, this is the Holy Spirit's attitude. You see, he testifies of Jesus. He focuses the spotlight on Jesus. He himself keeps a low profile. This may sound odd to you, but it's true. A church preoccupied with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit is a church not being led by the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. If it's a Spirit-led church, Jesus is the one who will be glorified. The church will be preoccupied with Jesus, His love and His grace and His mercy. That's how you know it's Spirit-led. John chapter 16 warns His disciples of the persecution that they'll be called on to endure. Verse 2 says, The day will come that whosoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. This warning applies not just to the twelve, but to us, his future followers also. We too will face trouble, but here's the good news. We, don't, we won't face it alone. In verse 7, Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Again, it was to their advantage that he leaves so that the Holy Spirit would come in his place. Augustine commented on the ascension of Jesus. He said, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. Jesus does now dwell in the heart of every believer, but he does so through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's something he couldn't have done as a man, but he can do through the Holy Spirit now. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world and comfort the Christian. Verses 8 through 11, He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, He says, because they do not believe in Me. Now remember, in Judaism, sins were really nothing more than a, than a list of picky prohibitions. That, that's how the Jews looked at sin. But sin, in, in reality, is an affront to a person. It's the failure to believe in Jesus. It's a, the failure to honor Him for who He is. That's the, the real nature of sin. He convicts us of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The Pharisees lived an ugly outward form of self-righteousness. Jesus had revealed the true beauty of holiness. 
love and humility in truth, you know, attitudes that the Spirit would also reinforce. And he convicts the world, we're told, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan held us hostage in sin until Jesus foiled his plot on the cross. Jesus brought judgment against Satan. His tyranny was broken, and the Spirit reminds us that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. John 16, verse 13 is a strategic verse. We're told the Spirit will guide you into all truth. He will tell you things to come. Add to that chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus said, He will bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. It's interesting. You take those three statements and they become the outline for the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the New Testament. The Spirit reminds us of the words of Jesus. What is that? The Gospels. The Spirit guides us into all truth. What is that? The New Testament letters. And the Spirit tells us things to come. What is that? The book of Revelation. In verse 16, Jesus foretells His ascension and His return to earth in cryptic terms. He says, A little while and you will not see Me. And again, a little while and you will see Me. In His view of time, the last 2,000 years have been a little while. Jesus will return from heaven. He will come again. He compares the experience of the church waiting on His arrival as the experience of a woman who delivers a child. The labor is difficult. You think it's never going to end. But then when the baby is born, the incredible joy takes over. It makes the sorrow and the labor all worth it. In verses 19 through 24, Jesus looks beyond the cross to His future kingdom. He says it's going to be worth it one day. Hebrews 12 verse 2 echoes this very thought. For the joy that was set before Him... Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He was able to see the joy because He looked beyond the cross to its what it would accomplish eventually. And you know, guys, that's a good lesson for us. Whenever we're called on to bear a cross, always make sure that you look beyond it to the crown that will follow. Chapter 16 ends with a promise. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Hey, the world we live in is like a frying pan. In this world, you will get burned. Jesus got burned. He got burned by His friends. By Peter. By Judas. He got burned by the Jews He came to save. Don't think for one minute you're going to get out of this world if you follow Jesus without a burn or two. But though Jesus suffered, in the end He overcame. Jesus overcame the world, and you will too if you follow Him. He says, these words I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. We refer to Matthew chapter 6 as the Lord's Prayer, but it's not. We know Jesus would have never prayed, forgive us our sins. He was sinless himself. He was spotless. He had no sin. Matthew 6 should be called the Disciples' Prayer. It was composed as a model prayer for you and me. But John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer. For here in the shadow of the cross, Jesus pours out His soul to the Father in heaven. John 17 has been called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. 
It is indeed holy ground. What a privilege we have here in John 17 to eavesdrop in on this conversation between Jesus and his Father just before he heads to the cross. He begins in verse 1. Father, the hour is come. The very moment for which he had been born in the first place has now arrived. He's about to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the world. He says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Verse 3 teaches us that eternal life is not longevity of life as much as it is proximity to life. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. A relationship with Jesus, that's what's everlasting. And if you're in one, you can count on that relationship lasting forever. Now that his work is finished, in verse 5, he desires his former glory. Remember, he laid aside the privileges of deity to become a servant. Soon, though, he will return to that glory. It will be restored. In verse 11, Jesus prays for unity among his disciples He says, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Once a man was visiting a mental hospital where he noticed there were only three guards in charge of hundreds of dangerous patients. He asked one of the guards, he said, don't you fear that these people will use their numbers and they'll overpower you? The man responded, no, lunatics Never unite. Holding on to worn out grudges. Nursing bruised feelings. Cultivating bitterness. Not letting go of stubborn prejudices. Guys, it's proof of our insanity. Jesus is praying for our unity. He did that night and He's doing so today. Verse 15 proves that Jesus had no plans of taking his disciples out of the world, at least not until the rapture. Nor did he expect them to take over the world. Rather, they were to be in the world, but not of it. They were supposed to hang out with heavenly habits, to be a witness to the world. They were to live sanctified lives, set apart, devoted to him. And how does he sanctify us? In verse 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What should set us apart? What should make us different people? Hey, guys, it's because we should be people of this book. This is how he sanctifies us and sets us apart. Jesus prays again for the unity of his followers. Literally, you and me in verse 21, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Because you know, as you look around the world, that the unity and the cohesion within a group, it's a rare thing. Rarely do you ever see any group truly united and, and really one in spirit and in truth. Today, families are crumbling. You don't see families united. Neighborhoods are in turmoil. You can't get them together. Genuine, genuine, workable oneness is something the world rarely sees. 
That's why it's when the church demonstrates our unity. Boy, that's when the world sets up and takes notice. That's when they recognize that there's something special going on here. There's a power here that helps these people overcome their differences and stay together and be a family. On the eve of the cross, Jesus was concerned about our relationships with each other. Tomorrow he goes to the cross. Tonight he prays for the folks at Calvary Chapel almost 2,000 years later that we'll drop our petty differences and our selfish grievances and we'll just love each other and strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus prays that you and I will stay tight. Our unity testifies of His power. You know... If you were to walk down the sidewalk and see a penny sitting there on the sidewalk, chances are you'd probably just ignore it and you'd just keep walking. But if you saw several pennies, you'd be more inclined to stop and pick them up, wouldn't you? I heard of an armored car that turned over and spilled out onto the street 4.3 million pennies. That's $43,000 worth of pennies. Now, that might be worth going home and getting the wheelbarrow and coming back and helping yourself. Guys, we are like pennies. A lone Christian may not capture anyone's attention. But if a person walks into this church and sees hundreds of believers united and loving each other, they are more likely to be impressed. They are more likely to want to learn more. Jesus could have prayed for anything. For strength, for courage, for resistance to pain. Hey, He's facing the cross. And He doesn't even pray for Himself. His final request is in verse 26. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. May we put our differences beside behind us. And may you and I, may we be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Father, thank you for these final instructions, these last words of Jesus to his church. Help us tonight, Lord, to take them to heart, to be the people that you desire, to be one, Lord, even as you were one with your Father. Help us, Lord, to be one with each other, to love each other as you have loved us. And in doing so, Lord, help us to be a witness to this needy world. Thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for our chapters and the many truths that we've gleaned. Lord, help us to meditate on these things this coming week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.